Hey everybody, the show is about to start, but before we get rolling, I want to bring up a few things. So if you could rate or review this podcast on iTunes, that would help us out immensely. And the second thing, if you could take a look at our Patreon page and maybe consider donating $5 to us, you can find our Patreon page at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. That's spoilers, plural. Doing so will grant you a bunch of bonus content. In fact, you'll be getting twice the amount of content you already get from us. We're also having some special things in the works that are coming up soon, and we'll be sure to announce those as they come up. So that's all the time I'm going to take. Here's the episode. Ethan announces this one at the beginning, so I guess just buckle up for that. Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. There Will Be Spoilers. I am Ethan Knight. I am Ethan Knight. (laughs) And you are Matt Bazell. I am Matt Bazell. And we are on movie number 74, The Silence of the Lambs, 1991. That's right. We're back with a movie I've seen before. A movie I've seen before a million times. A million times. I've only seen it once. It's actually probably the film... I last saw before we started this podcast, so it's actually mm. most recent outside of the confines of this on-demand media. Wow, that's really kind of exciting, because normally you haven't seen most of these films. Correct. So this one I think I preempt a little bit because of the Hannibal NBC TV show. Oh yeah, you watch Hannibal, and i that's something I've been meaning to see, but don't have television, so... Well, I think it's the first two seasons are free on Amazon Prime, but it's a very good show. I recommend it to I'll have to jump on it. So normally we start this out with a plot synopsis, Matt, don't we? We do, and I definitely am not prepared to give you one. Well, luckily I have one prepared. Shall we jump into it? Sure. The Silence of the Lambs is the story of Clarice Starling, a trainee at the FBI. She's assigned by veteran agent Jack Crawford to help with an investigation into incarcerated serial killers. She's sent to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a particularly dangerous and intelligent killer who ate his victims and is resistant to other interviewers. Clarice meets him and he gives her advice regarding the Buffalo Bill case. Buffalo Bill is a serial killer who's been abducting heavy women and skinning them. Shortly after Clarice's interaction with Lecter, Bill strikes again, abducting the the daughter of a senator. Clarice uses Lecter's clues to lead her to a storage locker owned by a patient of his, an old patient of his, and she finds a severed head in a jar that contains a rare death's head moth cocoon in its throat. Lecter reveals that Bill murdered the man and offers a profile of the man if she will help him get transferred away from his current prison and his nemesis, Dr. Chilton. Starling returns with an offer, though it's false, and Lecter demands to know more about her, quid pro quo, in return for details about the case. She obliges, but unbeknownst to the two of them, Chilton records the conversation. He reveals the fake offer to Lecter and reveals that he has a real one with the senator's help, and Lecter reluctantly agrees. He's flown to Memphis, Tennessee, and taunts the senator, but does eventually give her another piece of information. Bill's real name is Lewis Friend, and Lecter offers a physical description. 
Starling comes to Tennessee, where Lecter's being held in a makeshift cage in a courthouse, and reveals to him that she's seen through his ruse, Lewis Friend anagrams to iron sulfide, or fool's gold. She pushes him for more information, but he tells her everything she needs is in her case file. He then pushes her for more information about her background, and she reveals that after her father died, she was sent to a ranch, and one morning she was awoken by screaming. The spring lambs at the ranch were being slaughtered, and she tries to save them, but she's only able to carry one down the road. However, she was unable to actually save that lamb and was sent to an orphanage afterwards. Starling tells Lecter that she still has nightmares where she can hear the lambs screaming, and he suggests that perhaps she wants to save the senator's daughter in order to silence the screaming in her dreams. Chilton, however, arrives and has Starling escorted out, but not before she's able to retrieve her case file from Lecter. Not long after, Lecter kills his guards and escapes. Clarice studies the files, and based on a note Lecter left her and their conversations, she realizes that Buffalo Bill had to personally know his first victim. She travels to Belvedere, Ohio to investigate, visiting the house of his first victim, and realizes that he's killing women in order to make a suit out of their skin. He, she calls Crawford, and he tells her that the FBI is about to apprehend Buffalo Bill in Illinois, but to keep following up in Belvedere. Starling unwittingly ends up at the front door of Buffalo Bill's house. The earlier phone call with Crawford suggested that they knew the killer's location and were about to capture him, but the FBI is mistaken, and they raid an empty house. Starling realizes while in Buffalo Bill's house who he is after seeing one of his moths flying around, and in their moment of mutual recognition, Bill escapes into his labyrinthine basement. Starling follows him and is eventually left in the dark, stalked by a night vision goggle-wearing Bill. Bill's about to kill her, but the sound of his gun cocking alerts her and she shoots him dead. Shortly after, Starling graduates the FBI Academy, but receives a call from Lecter, who is in some tropical location stalking Chilton, and he reveals that he will not bother her if she extends him the same courtesy before hanging up. I don't think Hector recognizes Chilton as his nemesis. I think that's just Chilton being so self-absorbed that he thinks that Lecter would deem him worthy to be his nemesis. No, I disagree. He he says like and and she and they had that interaction the first time she's about to walk in there. Chilton says something like he thinks I'm his. Chilton says that's what I'm saying. You can't trust that because Chilton's self-absorbed. Okay, yes, but Hannibal Lecter fucking hates Chilton. I mean, well, he hates him, but I don't. Th- I think he's like he sees him as a, a pest as opposed to an actual nemesis. Because Chilton's stupid compared to Lecter. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, that. Yeah. I'll buy that definitely. I don't think Starling sort of accidentally stumbles upon Buffalo Bill's residence, right? She's put in the work. She's talking to was it Frederica's? Yeah, Frederica's yeah, Frederica. old friends, and says like, "Well, she had this." sewing old lady she really liked and they went there and what has clearly happened is that buffalo bill Killed. has taken the house that because she's like rotting in the the in bathtub, the, bathtub. In the, the basement yeah so i think i think she did the work right i think that's important for starling's character is yes, that nothing accidental right. happens like she's all very meticulous and that's why she's rated so highly on, in fact, AFI's top heroes list. I think she's number six or something like that. Yeah, and, and I guess I think you're right. I think correcting that verbiage is is better because what, what the sort of happenstance is that it's actually Buffalo Bill and she is she thinks she's going to go see like the son of the lady who owned the house or whatever. Right. 
Or the lady herself, maybe. Yeah, but it turns out that, of course, we... And, and, and like you said, we find out that Buffalo Bill has most likely killed her. I think I want to start with a pivotal scene because you mentioned it actually pretty extensively in your plot synopsis, mm-hmm. which just goes to show we don't communicate these things before we start the podcast, which <laughs> I think gives us a more honest... I guess, you know, investigation or analysis of these things. I think for our listeners, this is a little behind the scenes. I think that's become part of what we try to do here on this podcast. We very explicitly try not to talk about our reactions to the film and even the pivotal scene because your pivotal scene always, sometimes it's what I would have chosen and many times it's not. And that, like you said, leads to a more true reaction and a more honest reaction in terms of what we're trying to do here. Because like we said at the, at the outset of this podcast, we're not experts. And so, you know, we're trying to go through these things and, and have as much of an honest and, and real and true reaction as we go through and response to these films. And I think bringing in two things that are often disparate at worst are, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful. So with all that being said, I think the pivotal scene that I chose was the screaming of the lambs, the mm-hmm. section where Lecter is pressing Clarice Starling for more information as they're in that what is it? I guess it's a hotel that they're in it's a courthouse oh a courthouse it looked very hotel like to me I it, it is out. kind of hotel-y yeah well it's certainly very insecure but yes of course listen if you have a crazy murderer do not install him in a cage in <laughs> in like a building it didn't go well for them there as, as we saw but yes I chose this scene because it really gets to what I take to be the thesis of this film, but really gets down to the very nature of these two forces being Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter. So I don't want to say too much about it. Let's just give it a listen. Yeah, let's listen. It's your turn to tell me, Clarice. You don't have any more vacations to sell. Why did you leave that ranch? Doctor... We don't have any more time for any of this now. But we don't reckon time the same way, do we, Clarice? This is all the time you'll ever have. Later. Now, please, listen to me. We've only got five... No. I will listen now. After your father's murder, you were orphaned. You were ten years old. You went to live with cousins on a sheep and horse ranch in Montana. And? And one morning, I just ran away. Not just, Clarice. What set you off? You started at what time? Early. Still dark. Then something woke you, didn't it? Was it a dream? What was it? I heard a strange noise. What was it? It was... screaming. Some kind of screaming, like a child's voice. What did you do? I went... Downstairs, outside. I crept up into the barn. I was was so scared to look inside, but I had to. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Lambs. They were screaming. They were slaughtering the spring lambs? They were screaming. And you ran away? First, I tried to free them. I, I opened the gate to their pen, but they wouldn't run. They just stood there, confused. They wouldn't run. But you could, and you did, didn't you? Yes. I took one lamb, and I ran away as fast as I could. 
Where were you going, Clarice? I don't know. I didn't have any food, any water, and it was very cold. Very cold. I thought... I thought if I could save just one, but... He was so heavy. Was so heavy. I didn't get more than a few miles when the sheriff's car picked me up. Rancher was so angry, he sent me to live at the Lutheran Orphanage in Postman. I never saw the ranch again. What became of your lamb, Clarice? I killed him. You still wake up sometimes, don't you? You wake up in the dark and hear the screaming of the lamb. Do you think if you save poor Catherine, you could make them stop, don't you? You think if Catherine lives, you won't wake up in the dark ever again to that awful screaming of the lambs. Okay, so much like you heard Ethan describe at the beginning of the episode, and much like you heard the actual audio from the film there, they're talking about motivations, right? Why does Clarice Starling want to get Buffalo Bill? Well, because she's a good guy, right? It's very easy to, to simplify that and say, well, good guys want to catch the bad guys. But she actually has something in her past that makes her want to do good, right? She's actually motivated, mm-hmm. which makes her a deeper character, right? Absolutely. And Hannibal Lecter's intentions aren't really fleshed out. I guess that's a poor turn of phrase given his very nature. <laughs> but, but that's something that exists in the novels. Again, another based on a novel film on the afi top 100 at the end of this i'm sure we're going to have something like 80 percent based on based on a novel or something right yeah and and i will say as someone who has watched this film many times and seen just about everything except for that tv show having read the novel and the other novels that surround it that does give this film a lot more color and a lot more depth and i was thinking about that today as i rewatched. there are little relationships that are thrown in there that as someone who's read the novel you're like oh yeah this is why they're acting this way that I think maybe not knowing all this gets lost. And certainly when I watched this as a younger person, a lot of that got lost. And I will point out that this, you know, rewatching it this time, again, having it been a movie that I've seen a thousand times, rewatching it this time with actually a critical eye and not just having it on in the background. There is a lot to this movie. There are layers and layers and layers and layers. And some of them you don't quite understand if you haven't read the book unfortunately, or even seen some of the other films. Well, this is something that's kind of related to a point I was going to make next, which is having watched this fairly recently, maybe just a little over a year ago, when that Screaming of the Lambs section came up, which, you know, part of the title Mm -hmm, and the silence being, you know, we'll talk about in the thesis, but I heard that and didn't know what to make of it, right? Because I wasn't listening to it or watching the film critically, and right. so seeing it now and actually having it made sense, I thought was also a good pivotal scene for a pivot in my own mindset, right? My own perspective about viewing film. So I thought it was kind of interesting to show my own experience with this film and how it's changed such a short time by virtue of the fact of looking at something critically, saying I'm going to try to take this apart, analyze it, but mm-hmm. also having the experience of the 26 other canonical films behind this one. Yeah, for sure. So I think I want to turn to my thesis next because this all is wrapped up in that screaming of the lamb scene. So okay. the title, title of the film is The Silence of the Lambs. And so you are supposed to infer, which I really like the film has you infer this as opposed to simply 
saying the title of the film, which a lot of them do, right? Where the Silence of the Lambs is when we have, you know, when good has prevailed effectively. And I think this film is presenting a much more complex idea of the world, right? Titles and terms like good and evil, heroes and villains, they're really kind of impossible to use faithfully in the real world. Hannibal Lecter is an evil, but he's willing to stop Buffalo Bill, which seems that you can make an argument that he's a greater evil or a different evil or more chaotic version. And Clarice has to embrace gray to be successful in this sense. And Hannibal Lecter ends up at large in this film. And that's problematic and complicated. Chilton isn't necessarily a villain in the way he's depicted in the film. I'll say in the TV show, he's, he's written much, much worse. Right. And in the novel, he's also written worse. Sure. Yeah. So I don't like him and maybe he's got what's coming to him, but Hannibal Lecter is still an evil, right? And he is more of a, if we could use D and D terms, he's probably a lawful evil, right? He still responds to a certain set of code or ethics. Yeah, certainly he does have a, he has a code. His code might be kind of fucked up, but he's got a code and he's willing to do things that, that we would see as, as bad in order to enforce his code. So I think that that is a good way to put it. And Buffalo Bill is a chaotic evil, right? He's just, wild and doing things of his own kind of mystic in that it's not well seen so obscured intentions yes and his intentions are are absolutely self-serving whereas even hannibal lecter's intentions are not entirely self-serving right he he does come to have a weird loving relationship with clarice that is either it's either fatherly or erotic and maybe a little bit of both, and actually probably a little bit of both. Right. If we kind of mix in some Freudian psychoanalysis gone mm-hmm. bad, you could see kind of both relationships. Well, he does kill Miggs for being impolite to her, to say the least, right? Right, and he ends the film saying... Extend me the same courtesy. Right. And, and it's just like when she tells her friend, when her friend's like, Clarice, fucking Hannibal's out, and Clarice is like, he's not coming for me, he would find that rude. Yeah, he would consider that rude. I can't explain it, but he'd, he'd find that rude, right? And, he, and she's right. She's absolutely right. And I think actually what you've laid out in terms of your thesis, I think really hits on some of the themes that I think are really important in this film and that I that didn't really hit me until today. Again, this is something, man, I was obsessed with Thomas Harris, and that's the author of the novel, and mm-hmm. you know this film and the, and the sort of little world that surrounds this in terms of both print and and film for a very long time and i and i think rewatching this so much of this film is about seeing things and about shifting how you see things and and that leads to this this other larger theme of transformation and what this film does really well i think is lay out a lot of this stuff on a really it's the lowest common denominator stuff right like we if we want to talk about transformation as a theme Obviously, it's a theme. Buffalo Bill literally wants to transform into a woman, or at least thinks he wants to transform into a woman. Right. I want to take a moment just to clarify for our listeners that this film talks about transsexualism in what can be construed as a negative light, but I think that would be simplistic. I think they'd be doing the film a disservice. I think it has a handling of this that says, look, Buffalo Bill thinks he wants to be you know, a woman, but isn't quite sure, and there's a lot of gender identity politics yeah i think what it's trying to say is actually 
He's been abused by society, trying to make him conform to a certain gender. That's made him into this monster. Not that transsexuals are monsters. Yes, exactly. And there was a lot of there was a lot of backlash about this, even in the early '90s. And I mean, we ha- we live in a very different cultural moment in terms of like transgender and all of that, and and gender identities than we did, you know, almost 26 years ago. And 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 this film doesn't maybe doesn't handle it like we'd like in 2017 terms, but there are nods where I mean, they basically outright say, and I think Hannibal says it, he hates himself, and so the closest thing he can grasp to is that he's a transsexual, and of course even that's an antiquated term. We don't say that anymore, sure. right? But right, he so because he hates himself, he wants to be something different, and the easiest thing for him to grasp onto is what we would now call, you know, transgender. And it and it's and it's not about that, right? It's and it's not, you know, and they even make a nod to it in the film where they talk about how they call them transsexuals. They're like transsexuals are docile, right? Because it's you know, he's not a transgender person. He's someone who is who has been abused in his life and the novel fleshes this out right and talks about his terrible childhood and all this sort of thing and like that creates a psychosis in him and he latches on to something that is vaguely similar to what he wants and so that's what it becomes but but again this film i think is about transformation buffalo bill hates himself and wants to transform into something else now that's lowest common denominator on, on a more interesting and deeper level, we're seeing Clarice Starling's transformation from, I mean, on so many levels. We can begin with her transformation from a student to an expert, right? She's, an, she's at the FBI Academy and wants to be an FBI agent. And we see her become someone who's learning to someone who knows what she's doing, right? And it takes a highly traumatic and terrible experience to do that. We also get to see Clarice Starling transform from this from a very helpless orphan from, you know, West Virginia into, you know, someone who is who 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 sheds all those stereotypes, right? She herself is in a transformation process, right? Which is actually made very clear throughout the film. Things yeah. like in the funeral parlor with all the uniformed officers and sheriffs around her and she just you see her getting physically intimidated to being able to stop the bad guy at the end. Yeah. And 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 gender of course, right? Gender roles and gender identity and just gender in general is another huge theme in this film. These three themes are all so wrapped up. And what this film does well is that it it shows and doesn't tell and it does it through things like the cinematography the cinematography in this film and i never had really seen it until today this film does so many things like we will get a very close-up of clarice starling's face looking at a room and then it'll flip and we get what is essentially a point of view shot of everything she's looking at and how she's looking and then it pulls us back into sort of a third person view where we're seeing everybody looking at each other Almost all of the interactions with characters in this film are close shots of faces that, as it switches back and forth, you 
basically see, it's not necessarily explicitly this, but you see what Clarice sees when she's having an interaction with a human. You see what that other person is seeing when they're looking at her. And then and then it'll do that. Sometimes it'll pull us back into a you know an omniscient view or a third person view where we as an audience member and you know the director is looking at these things. And it happens over and over and over again, right? We see someone's face, then we see what they're seeing, then we see what the other people are seeing, and then we see, you know, the whole scene. And it does it again and again and again because it's driving home the fact that the way we see things is important and shifts the world and and, and shifts our own identities, right? This is really important. And that that's what, and, and like, it leads back to your thesis right Hannibal Lecter in any other movie is a monster an evil evil person but we get to see him in a different way and this film takes us by the hand and says look we're going to show you Hannibal Lecter is a bad person but we're also going to show you a bunch of other monsters and then all of a sudden you're kind of like you're almost rooting for Hannibal Lecter at points and then you know we get scenes like where he murders these people escaping his cage and you're like wait a second he's not that good but we get to see him in these different lights over and over and we get to see Clarice even as a trainee and then as someone who's got some power when she lies to Hannibal Lecter about his uh that deal she makes with him right Mm -hmm. on Plum Island yeah the Plum Island and he's like Anthrax Island you know thanks that was a good and he says he's like that was a good bit did you put that in and she's like yeah. And we start this film where Crawford, Jack Crawford, is like, I had to send you in knowing nothing because he would have smelled it. And then the film makes it very clear that, like, when she goes in with that with that deal, later on we find out she had something to do with that. So she went in having to know nothing so that she could get anything done. Then the second time she goes and sees him, she's in on it. And she lies to him and she, for what it's worth, if not very clearly tricks him, gets close to it and i mean he kind of is he sees her later and he's like good job you know he's like all right okay he tips his hat a little bit and is like okay i think there's another point of bringing two things together you just talked about cinematography and transformation i think we see this very explicitly in the first scene of the film where we have these close chase shots of her Mm -hmm. as she's running through the obstacle course. And so it gives you the impression that she is being pursued right that she is being hunted that she is you know, she is the weaker party or she is not strong enough to handle this task that's going to be put before her, right? It's almost a little bit of foreshadowing in that way. And you yeah. got the fog around in the Virginia forest, so you know this is kind of like very moody, atmospheric, and it feels like a horror film. Yeah. And the same thing's repeated when At Buffalo Bill is following her in the dark with a night vision, and she is literally grasping around in darkness. Yeah. But she prevails in that sense. So just the cinematography shows us her transformation right the plot doesn't have to tell us that we get to see it happen yeah yeah and and we also and i mean on another level too at the beginning of the film she's running away from literally her past right as we find out later on right she's running away from the bad things that have happened her the death of her father the the death of the lambs right and by the end even though she's still sort of grasping and running it is a very different kind of scene. In the in the in that first big long tracking shot where we see her running through the course, she's running and is unarmed. In the last one, she's not just running. She's ready to fight and does I mean her claws are out. If we're going to, you know, to make a 
terrible punny reference to our last Patreon episode with Logan. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, her claws are out. I mean, she's got her fucking weapon, and she's ready to use it. She's just blinded, right? And so instead, we're not following her in the same kind of way. We're watching her, and we're stalking her, and she prevails. So, yeah, it, it does these 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 nice echoes with a twist, right? It's almost a reprise where we see it again, but it, with a twist, it's different. Yeah. So, Ethan, we could easily talk all night about the many, many things this film does well, yeah. but I think we might need to shift to our three questions because we're already kind of pushing that limit. Yeah, I think we are. Why don't we go to our first question and do we care about this film? I think we do. I think we have to because I think what this film does in a lot of ways is really, really popularize a certain kind of thriller that we have seen repeated in so many bad movies and in just and in good movies, right? Like there are just the the, the the sort of tropes that get set up are things like the intelligent anti-hero villain in Hannibal Lecter. That of course, and Hannibal Lecter only has—he's got like 15 minutes of screen time, and that motherfucker won an Oscar, and it was—I think it's 23, and it was the second least for an actor to win the you know Academy Award for Best Actor. Yeah, and so you know that sets up a certain thing. We also get this sort of—I mean, I'm for what it's worth, and Jodie Foster does this later in her career. She's a strong female lead in this kind of a film, and in this sort of. You know, I wouldn't call it true crime, but it mimics a lot of true crime stuff. So we get to see, yeah, so we get to see that. And do we care about this film? Yes. I mean, Hannibal Lecter has become a trope, and Clarice Starling has become a trope. You know, these are characters that are mimicked left and right. I would say I absolutely do care about this film. I think it's one of my favorite we've seen on the list so far, to be honest. This is one of my favorite films, hands down. Yeah, it's very good. It does a lot of interesting things that... We talked at length about one more I want to add to this about cinematography again. Hannibal Lecter, when a camera crosses his eyes, like when he goes, you know, you see it on a track moving toward him, he follows the camera, yes. which is supposed to be disconcerting to the audience, but also gives the impression that he sees everything. To go back to your theme about seeing and perspective. Yeah. So it's really well done when she first goes down into that gauntlet of the mental institution through all the cells mm-hmm. and glass. You really feel the fear about this character whom we haven't seen yet. We just yes. know this guy is bad news. Yes. And and I think it's intensified by that effect that I talked about earlier that they were doing where over and over we get to see what Clarice is seeing. And so that small effect done over and over when Hannibal Lecter starts looking into the camera he's looking at us. I mean, he's looking at Clarice, but he's looking at us. And 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 I think there's a really interesting variation of that when Buffalo Bill has his little, you know, this, this is sort of the famous scene where he tucks his wiener between his legs and is like, you know, he, he like shows himself or whatever. But in that scene, the camera becomes not the film camera, but his own personal movie camera that he's mm-hmm. looking into, right? And so the film sets it up in which what we're seeing is through other people's eyes, sometimes through the director's eyes, sometimes through what feels almost like found footage. And it does it so seamlessly and so well. And we see this in films now and in shitty films, in bad films. This stuff happens all the time, but this film does it in such a subdued and such a calculated and well-done way 
that you, unless you're paying close attention, you don't notice these shifts, right? The camera is multivalent and is so many things at so many different times. And unless you're paying close attention to it, you're not seeing all of these tiny little shifts. And I think that has affected a lot of the ways that films since then have dealt with cinematography. I, again, I've seen this film a million times and watching it today and paying close attention to the cinematography, I was like, this is on another level. And I just never saw it before because I was never looking with a critical eye. And it is better than, than I mean, the cinematography is gold in this film. Gold. So we clearly have spoken a lot about the fact that we do, in fact, care about this film. Yes. <laughs> and we've actually sort of traipsed all over my second question, which is what do we owe? So yeah. I think I want to reinforce a couple of things you were saying, Ethan, about tropes with Hannibal Lecter as a trope. And this kind of refers back to the whole lawful evil thing again mm -hmm. earlier. This is where Dexter, the character Dexter, comes yes. right out of, right? There is no Dexter without Hannibal Lecter. And Dexter, of course, had a very successful TV show. But that starts here, right? We also have quid pro quo, right? How many times mm -hmm. do you see this afterwards? Uh, most memorable for me in Austin Powers, uh, the Dr. Evil saying quid pro quo. <laughs> and neither of them having any idea what it means. Right. We also see the flower delivery, FBI, guns and boxes type situation. Yes. I think that plays a really big part into that. I know, I think my uncle was telling me that this might have shown up earlier with a gun in a flower box, but the idea of multiple flower boxes and a bunch of people with flower boxes reminds me of yeah. a King of a Hill episode where they deliver a bunch of flowers and they think they're guns. Mm -hmm. And then... I think most importantly, we get the idea of the scare-quoted disturbed horror film in which someone tries to make a villain so othered as Buffalo Bill is in his crimes, in his dungeon-like basement, in his behaviors, the it rubs its lotion on the it rubs the lotion on its skin or it gets the I hose again. Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. Right? Like all these kind of really unsettling me? things. I'd fuck me. Get away right. from your microphone. It's too close. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have to say that I just have to take us on a little tangent. I love this film so much, and I have so many friends that really know it really well, including my girlfriend, and we laugh a lot about Buffalo Bill, like shit like, I'd fuck me. And like, he's like, precious? Was she a great big fat person? Like, they're just, yeah. it, this film has, it has, in, it's snaked its way through my life in that like, in some of my basic interactions with a lot of my friends, you know, we, and, and, and I will say this too. This is kind of funny that you said it. it. There was this big coincidence. I have a group chat with my girlfriend and my best friend from college and his wife. I mean, my best friend from college, James Shetler, friend of the show. I'll just throw that out there. Shout out. He's a Patreon supporter. So thank you, James. We were all texting the other night about alternate names for movies and my girlfriend said well we should do this all the time with a bunch of different movies and this morning she texted out and she goes our movie today is silence of the lambs she goes it's silence of the lambs day and i was like it actually is silence of the lambs day because i'm doing the podcast today and so we spent all this time with alternate titles for silence of the lambs and we spent about two and a half hours making up alternate names for Silence of the Lambs. And maybe for our ending, for our way out, I could read a couple of them because they're funny. But 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 it, 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 yes, we owe this movie a lot. And this movie is something you can't get away from. But the dark side of that is that 
even though a character like Buffalo Bill is so well done and so perfectly disturbing to an audience, you see so many films try that. They attempt that and it comes mm-hmm. off as weird and unearned, right? A lot of films think that they can just do the weird horror stuff without building it all up like this film has done. Yes, that I agree. I think that's one of the best ways to put it, Matt. I think to say that like other films do this and they don't earn it. This film earns our distaste for Buffalo Bill and our uncomfortableness with Buffalo Bill. Yeah, they're not just throwing weird things out there to be weird. He's doing weird things because it comes from this psychosis or this pathology, I think, was what Dr. Lecter says in the film, from his very troubled youth, right? And his identity yes. and lack thereof and covetedness and... All of these things, right? So I think we'll just leave it at that. And we'll move on to our third question. Does this film hold up? Yes. Which which I'll mention, Ethan, you have answered probably six times on different podcasts yeah, about this. Yeah, I was literally about to say that. I think that this film, and, and maybe rewatching today, I might pull back a little bit from that. But I think that this film visually holds up very well. Now, there are lots of things that date it. There are things like the police fax machine or the tape player or some of the cars, and some of the clothing, but a lot of the clothing in this film is police uniforms, which have not changed, or conservative clothing that, you know, Clarice wears, that, like, you could get away wearing, if not her outfit, uh, you know, today, a a slight variation of her outfit. I couldn't, but you could. Well, yeah, yes. But, like, this film does, you know, offer... In general, and, and, and actually, you know, I've read some interviews from people who made this film. One of the one of their goals was to not date it as best they could. So, like, we see these things, and we see people in clothing, and we see people doing things that are fairly universal for the last 20, 30 years, and maybe the next 20, 30 years. Like, again, it's, it's uniforms and suits and things that haven't really changed, and they've changed in small ways. But visually, you know, we're, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't date it in the way that's, that some of our other films have. And I think in addition to that, in addition to it holding up visually, which I agree, it doesn't look that old, it doesn't sound that old, it all kind of fits well. The story is something that still clicks well with a modern audience, I think. It's a yes. good thriller, right? We have good plot lines, good advancement. There's very few times where I say... Uh, how exactly does that work? I think the one example was the weighted body of the first girl being found third. I'm not Mm. sure how that gave her the revelation to find Buffalo Bill at that moment, but you know, that's a small thing. And I'm sure the book handled it better, which I'm not worried about because we were so caught up in the action that regardless of the kind of, uh, unbelievable, nature of the discovery you want Clarice to come out victorious in this city yeah and 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 so I'm, I know I've used this film as a benchmark and I kind of want to double down on that a little bit and say that like this is one of those films that you know even 10 years from now you can watch it and it will feel a little dated but it won't feel so dated that it's unwatchable and you know something like even something like Toy Story that we began with which still holds up pretty well now in 20 30 years might not really you know what i mean there there have been quite a few films that we've been like we you know and and again there are things in this film like the certain terms they use like transsexual and mm-hmm. yeah i think the gender politics is the something that 
really might not show that well today. Actually, I would I would disagree with it for the most part. I would say actually a lot of the gender politics hold up. So much of this film is about gender and about making very obvious. No, I, I agree. Gender. I just think that that one yes. specific yes. section can come off as misunderstood. I think someone yes. can misunderstand that. I think they handle it fine. I think it can be seen in a dark light. Yes, I think that the sort of transgender, what we what we call now transgender, and what they called then transsexual, and and all the homosexual stuff comes off as considerably less kosher, as considerably less okay. But in terms of the more clear binary of male to female, I mean, we get to see, we get to feel what Clarice feels as a woman in a man dominated profession, and I think that that holds up. I mean, I think that, you know talking to a lot of other women in the academy or just women in general like i think this film does a really good job of visually representing that and 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 making us feel that well this is why the fbi had full cooperation with this film because they thought it would give more women the idea to be fbi agents right and i'm sorry if you watch this film and you don't want to be a fucking fbi agent after watching it (laughs) right exactly i feel like everybody watches this movie and they're like i'm gonna apply for the fbi because look who doesn't want to like you know exactly so i guess this is the end of our fbi sponsored episode and (laughs) you all should go out and do an application i know i've put mine in we're all going to relocate to washington dc which is actually required for two years you have to relocate so i actually have looked into this and i vaguely looked into it but i'm too fat dear listener i'm too fat matt's in good shape i'm in not great shape you're in shapes (laughs) I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm in shape. I'm not in good shape or great shape. Hey, look, all of us have a shape, full stop. Round is a shape, yeah. (laughs) Correct, yeah. (laughs) So, with all that being said, we want to thank everyone for tuning in. We really want you to check out our Patreon. We have no less than 14 awesome episodes up right now, all of which can be yours for the low, low cost of $5 a month. What that does is allows us to continue doing both these episodes and the bonus episodes. And very, very soon we'll be announcing some very special bonus content that will be available only to Patreon listeners. So again, check us out on Patreon. And next week for Patreon, we'll be watching The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. And and I will say this. I've had a couple of our Patreon listeners because I know a few of them. And... I've had a couple of people tell me that some of our best episodes are our Patreon episodes. And I think some of that is because they've seen some of the things we've done. But the Patreon episodes, I mean, I'm really proud of quite a few of our Patreon episodes. It's where we loosen our ties a little bit and cut loose. Yeah. And we're doing films that aren't that don't have quite the amount of stakes that they have, you know, in the canonical episodes. It's worth, you know what, even if you throw us $5 for one month and then don't give it again, you get the whole backlog. You can listen to as much as you want. Check it out. We've got some awesome stuff there. Please take the time. And speaking of high-stake films, next time on AFI's Top 100 list, our canonical episodes, free to all, we have Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. (sighs) Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But until then... I've been Matt Bazell. And as always, I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Clarice, I ate his spoilers with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. (laughs) It's actually pretty good. There Will Be Spoilers is hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. 
It's produced each week by Matt Bazell. Our artwork is by Becca Knight. You can find her on Twitter at Becca the Knight. Our great music was produced and created by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can check him out all over the internet. You can always find us on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can find us on Patreon if you would like to support us for only $5 a month, also at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Our email continues to be spoilerscast at gmail.com, so send us some complaints, hate mail, and maybe a compliment or two. Remember, please, subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, and we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you so much. Alternate titles for The Silence of the Lambs. Put the lotion in the fucking basket. Precious? A dog's tail. In search of a nice Chianti. Why you shouldn't send rookies to talk to insane PhDs. Hannibal interrupted. 15 minutes of screen time Oscar winner. My big fat person. Oh shit, fuck, I fucked that one up. My great big fat person. Um, the Hose Again, a Silence of the Lambs sequel. Shut those fucking lambs up. My Size 14 Life and Death. Ready When You Are, a Sergeant Story. Who's That Head? I'd Fuck Me, the Buffalo Bill Story. Woman Suit Yourself. This is, this is one of my favorite ones. The Thing. Back to Baltimore. <laughs> it rub that one's pretty fucking good. It rubs the Vix under its nose, or else it gets condescended to again. <laughs> this one's this is, I like this one too. I shot a serial killer, and all I got was hit on by an entomologist. <laughs> or this one, I like this one a lot. Honey, I swallowed my tongue. <laughs> or thanks for the scraps, asshole. How Precious Got Caught. Can I move? Move? What the hell you mean move? I'm better when I move. Yeah. Morons. I've got morons on my team. Hell, it's just a bank like any other bank. Gotta move in slowly, check out everything. The thing to remember when we Don't tell me how to rob a bank. I know how to rob a bank. Boy, a few dark clouds appear on your horizon. You just go all to pieces, don't you?